Welcome to Shelter, a podcast examining housing insecurities in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. This is part four of our series from Rutgers University, Colab Arts, and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. If this is the first episode you've heard, we suggest you go back and start with episode one for some background on this project and how it came about. Today's show is about a philosophy and policy called Housing First. And to explain what that is, we're going to begin by telling you about a psychologist named Sam Sambaris. In the early 1980s, as the homeless population began to explode in cities across the country, Sam had this job where he would drive around New York City in a van with a nurse, checking up on people who are living on the streets and often taking them against their will to the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital. The thinking at the time was that doctors and social workers knew what was best for this population. But the longer he did this, Sam began to notice something. He recounted his experience in a TED Talk a number of years later. I would see people on the sidewalk that had been in treatment in the hospital just the month before. And there was a repetitive quality to people being hospitalized, disappearing from the sidewalk, coming back to the spot over and over again. And this group of people began to gather a lot of different labels about them. Uh, Because we were consistently failing to help them constructively, what we did was we began to label them as uh, treatment-resistant, hard-to-reach. When things didn't work out, he said the inclination was always to sort of blame the victim, and there was very little consideration among his colleagues in the profession that maybe there was something wrong with how they were handling the situation. When they were dealing with the portion of the unhoused population that suffered from mental illness, alcoholism, or drug addiction, they always assumed that the top priority was getting them treatment before even finding them a place to live, because after all, even a homeless shelter wouldn't accept someone who failed the drug test. Eventually, however, Sam decided that maybe he should simply listen to what people themselves told him they thought would be most helpful. People would say, no, I don't need to go into alcoholism treatment. I've had a drinking problem since I was a teenager, or I've had mental health problems when I was young. I need a place to live first. And the transformative moment for us was to basically accept that person's point of view, allow ourselves to be changed by their needs and their wants, rather than us to impose our beliefs upon them. There was just one problem. For the most part, The system at the time wasn't set up to allow people coming off the streets with mental health issues or addictions to immediately access government-subsidized housing. Instead, there was this kind of ladder or staircase approach, where they'd start at the bottom and very slowly move their way up as they got treatment and met certain requirements to show that they qualified for and were deserving of a permanent place to live. You get into shelter first, and you're there from like 3 to 12 months, and then you get into transitional housing where you get, you know, rich, sane, clean, smart, and you're there for like, you know, 18 months, and then you're ready to be into permanent housing. Eileen O'Donnell runs Coming Home of Middlesex County, a group working to end homelessness in central New Jersey. She says this old approach was problematic in many ways. There were strict rules and regulations of what you could do, what you couldn't do, and there were certain time periods that you were allowed to be in this institution versus this institution. You were still born in a home, and it just wasn't working. 
the government was spending a whole lot of money on shelters and transitional housing, and nobody was getting perfect in order to be eligible for a house. Part of the issue, she explains, is that it's sort of a chicken or egg scenario. People were expected to achieve certain benchmarks to prove their so-called housing readiness, but it could be difficult to focus on self-improvement if you don't even know where you're going to get your next meal. you got to take care of your basic needs first, right? So, you know, you got to be able to know where you're sleeping at night so that you can then think about, you know, managing finances and improving your credit score, you know, and getting a job and finding childcare and all that sort of thing. Otherwise, you're thinking about where am I sleeping tonight, every night, every single night. This is actually something we heard time after time from many of the people we interviewed as part of the shelter project. For example, here's John Copeland, who told us how much finding housing meant for him after he was released from prison. If you had a job, right, you want to go there, but you have no place to stay. You know, so how are you going to get the job? So it's all basically having that foundation to help you. You know, if I had nothing in here, I wouldn't care. If I sleep on the floor, fine. But I have the roof over my head so I can do what I need to do. And here's Austin Morial from Neighbor Corps Reentry Services, who we heard from last episode. Without a doubt, having not only a roof over your head, but hopefully a bed under your body, it's huge to have that basic level of stability from a mental health standpoint, as well as the practical aspects of having a place to keep your stuff. Um, you know, so you're not carrying all of your belongings around with you everywhere you go, or you're not stashing your belongings, you know, hidden somewhere down by the river or behind a building, wondering if your stuff is going to be there when you get back to it. And, you know, just the level of safety and peace of mind, not having to basically, you know, sleep with one eye open if they're, you know, sleeping out on the streets. Not being able to get, you know, a decent night's rest is going to affect your mental health, your physical health, and just really end up wreaking havoc on everything that you're trying to accomplish. It all seems so simple and obvious now, but believe it or not, few people in the government and social services community were thinking this way back in the 1980s and early 90s. So Sam Sambaris decided to forge his own path. In 1982, he created an organization called Pathways to Housing with this idea that seemed totally crazy at the time. He would find apartments for homeless people with serious mental health issues while simultaneously offering them treatment instead of making that treatment a prerequisite for housing. No one had ever really tried this before, so he wasn't entirely sure it would work. But given that the old approach hadn't been very successful, he figured it was worth a shot. So Sam got some money from New York's Office of Mental Health Services, enough to pay for 50 apartments, as well as case managers to help these new tenants with any services they needed. Folks would have to pony up 30% of their income or government benefit checks towards rent, but Sam's group would cover the rest. The experiment seemed to show some early promise, but the real proof was when a scientific study eventually backed up those findings. 225 people with severe mental illness, and in many cases drug and alcohol addictions, were randomly assigned either the staircase approach to treatment that we spoke about earlier, or they were immediately given their own apartment. After two years, only about a third of the folks receiving the traditional treatment had successfully completed all the steps to receive their own housing. But among Sam's group, the percentage of folks that remained in their apartments was close to 80%. So this new approach that came to be known as Housing First was deemed a resounding success. Here's Eileen O'Donnell again. People don't need to be perfect before they get into a house. 
because I'm not perfect. I bet you're not perfect, but we have a roof over our heads, right? There are mental health services and there are social services for people who have roofs over their heads. So why does somebody who is homeless have to, you know, prove themselves to be perfect before they get into a home? Housing First became even more popular once researchers discovered that it was saving taxpayers a ton of money compared to the old way of doing things, which involved footing the bill for all sorts of expensive services for people living on the streets. That attracted the attention of Republicans like George W. Bush, so it became a bipartisan issue. Nowadays, the federal government actually goes so far as to evaluate grant applications from groups that work with the homeless based on how much they incorporate the Housing First approach. Eileen explained to us how she works with her clients under this new system. You want to sit with them and say, what do you want to work on? It's your plan and we'll help you. What are your barriers to housing? Meanwhile, you know, you're trying to get them into housing. But once they get there, you do have to abide by the terms of the lease, right? So if you're a drug addict and you're working on that, you don't have to be completely clean, but you can't do drugs on the premises, you know, because that's a crime and you're not allowed to do crimes in your landlord's apartment. But say you're an alcoholic and you're working on that, but if you want to go down to the corner bar and get drunk and come back and go to sleep, you're okay because it's not the landlord's business, right? As long as you're abiding by the terms of the lease and being a decent tenant, your health is not the landlord's business. So that's what Housing First means. As we've discussed on previous episodes of this podcast, housing is of particular concern here in New Jersey, where we're producing this show, because this is an especially expensive place to live. According to the 2021 NJ Counts survey, more than 8,000 people in the state lacked permanent housing as of January of last year. That includes not just people living on the streets, but also folks in emergency shelters or so-called transitional housing. Seeing all this, Reverend Seth Copperdale of the Reformed Church of Highland Park decided to take up the charge. I think about this a lot, the number of people who we've attempted to help over the years who come to us exhausted, like physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, because they're moving from couch to couch, because they're moving from car to couch, because they're getting a hotel the first few days of the month because that's when their check comes in, and by the end of the month they're back in their car. And they've been doing this for a really long period of time because no one will rent to them even though they're making $50,000 a year. But that's not enough money to show a landlord here that you're gonna be able to afford your rent for the long haul. So this entire world of the working poor doesn't qualify for apartments. In 2006, Seth created the Affordable Housing Corporation as one of the many ministries his church provides for members of the greater New Brunswick community. He says he did it out of a sense of obligation. All of this stuff was just so evident as like the thing that led to exhaustion and then made it very hard to think about joy, beauty, or any of the other things that we believe are like the reason God created us, that we could experience the beauty of God's world in, in some shared and incredible way. So to me, it felt like the biggest thing to tackle. The other thing, just my, my reality early on, was there's a whole lot of groups funded to do just about everything else. A lot of grant money goes out to groups tackling other things, but very few groups are actually tackling the biggest hindrance to like getting started. There are not a lot of groups like ours doing affordable housing. There's a few, but it's just a huge gap. 
From his perspective, prioritizing finding someone a place to live is a natural outgrowth of his Christian faith. Housing first is so theologically sound. It's grace first. It's like, because you are a valued human being, before you can do anything else, something is lavishly poured out upon you, namely the ability to go to good night's sleep and to have your very basics addressed. And then from that place, you can really grow into whatever else, you know, you want to be, God wants you to be, you're going to become. If housing was a concern in New Jersey prior to the pandemic, COVID-19 has made the situation even more urgent. Because remember what health officials and political leaders told us back when this pandemic started? Officials are urging you to stay inside your home as much as possible. Certainly, Newark police have begun enforcing the mayor's shelter-in-place order for the entire city. The mayor breaking this new announcement that he's telling basically everybody in the city of Hoboken to shelter in place, and they don't want But if you have no shelter or the place where you're living fails to provide basic levels of safety, privacy, or comfort. That's tough advice to follow. Depending upon your situation, it can be hard to practice good hygiene, like washing your hands regularly. And on top of that, many unsheltered people have underlying health conditions, and many of them are older, which puts them at greater risk of the virus. Recognizing this problem, in the spring of 2020, the Luce Foundation's Theology and Religion Program, which helped fund the creation of this podcast, granted more than $100,000 to Pastor Seth's Affordable Housing Corporation. Using this and other funding his group received, Seth was able to provide direct financial aid to more than 120 people and help 32 households secure housing in the midst of the pandemic. He says that addressing the pressing needs of his community was definitely challenging, but he was ultimately able to do so with a bit of creativity. Let me just tell you a story of a guy named James who I just met with this morning. James moved in August 1 through the shelter program through Luce. He was referred to us by a caseworker who I trust a lot. He'd been in jail for 16 months, but before that he'd been homeless for like seven years. And then he's in the pandemic and released, and he came directly into an apartment that we provided. He's $5,000 behind on his rent right now with me. His rent's around 500 a month. So he pretty much hasn't paid anything since he moved in. And what I said to him, I said, James, I am so happy with how you're doing here. I said, after those two experiences, a long period of homelessness and a long time of incarceration, like you always come in here with a smile. You are just like kind and good to everyone here. You know, yeah, it's not great to be 5,000 behind on your rent, but like you're living well in housing that you're sharing with other people. And then I said to him, have you ever done any work outdoors, like with your hands? And he said, I grew up in Alabama. I worked on a farm when I was a kid. I said, well, you know what? We have Global Grace Farms that we just started actually since you moved in here and you probably don't know about it. I said, but somebody just spotted me some money. And I'd like to just tell you, like, if you just would work out there in the farm from two to five every day, just, you know, keep track of your hours and I'm going to pick away at your back rent. Now, how could I do that? One, because we have like awesome opportunities for James to do stuff and to meet people, but also somebody else who was excited about hearing what we did last summer and taking a risk, who was very wealthy and never knew anything about this church, stepped up a few months ago and said to me, I'm gonna give you $25,000 just to cover losses from the people you housed last summer. All right, so a portion of that's gonna go for James. Maybe those grants we've put in for his rental assistance from this fund or that fund will come through. And if so, his work with the farm will pay it forward for him for a time. So this is like a way to, you know, support the whole person. And, you know, he felt so good about it. 
For all its successes, Eileen O'Donnell from Coming Home of Middlesex County is quick to acknowledge that Housing First is not a magic bullet, and it definitely has its challenges. Even if groups like hers and Seth's believe strongly in the mission, they still need to come up with the funding to actually house people. And on top of that, there's the ongoing need for social workers to help with case management, and that funding can be in short supply. Plus, she says, simply getting a home for someone is hardly the final step. Even if you find a landlord and you get your client in a state, not that they have to be perfect, but get them moving along a little bit their path so that they can present themselves well to the landlord, it takes a lot of effort still to keep up with that housed client as well, because now you're moving on and you're engaging new clients, right? If they're still very precarious and, you know, you've got them set up with maybe some good mental health services, but... Maybe they missed two sessions, right? And maybe you didn't know it because you were out like with two or three other clients. We have had um, a couple situations where our housed clients get in trouble with the law, you know, and where they are jailed. Well, if you're out of your unit for more than 90 days, you'll lose your voucher. Still, she says everyone deserves a chance, and she could think of very few people who, given a support structure, wouldn't be ready to have their own home. There was a family, a mother, a father, and a teenage son, and they were all heroin addicted. And there was no way they would have gotten into any housing under the old system until they had shown some improvement at least. But we had had some funds through uh, New Jersey's Pandemic Relief Fund. And so we put them in housing and we have a rock star case manager who worked with all three of them and a really wonderful landlord too. And they're now on the road to recovery. They never would have been at home before. And to what extent do you think getting them in a home first helped them work on their addiction issues? I think it was crucial because they sort of taste a little bit of normalcy and comfort, right? We have a program also short-term because of the pandemic to outreach persons who are on the street who did not want to come in from the cold because they're doing what they're doing, right? And not ready to make a change in their lifestyle. But we put them up in hotels because they were very vulnerable to the ravages of COVID. They were old or they had a disease and, you know, they had a comorbidity. Well, I was hoping against hope that that would be a stepping stone to housing. And it was not for everyone, but for many of them, because, you know, you got a taste of it. You're like, okay, okay. I'm not like out there and, you know, I'm not a loser. And I have a little bit of sense of self regained and it takes time to regain that self because you completely lose your self image as a valuable person in society. You know, you're just on the streets for God's sakes. Right. And so when they're not, they're able to say, okay, I can do this. I can do something different. John Copeland certainly felt that way when he came out of prison and got an apartment of his own. It's a beautiful thing because I have great peace of mind now. I was talking to my cousin, matter of fact. I was like, oh my God, I haven't had a bed like in almost three years, you know. And she was like, how does it feel? I said, it's great, because it is, you know. It's like my little corner and it's my sanctuary. Nobody bothers me. No one knows me out here. Even just to have a place, it's a blessing like this. It's a blessing. I don't have to share nothing with nobody. When I was homeless, living with people or even living in rooming houses, it was my home. I had to do what I had to do, share this and share that, whatever. But now, I don't have to do that. I'm like, okay, this is really great. I like it because it has no interference with God and myself. And now what I feel like is like the whole new beginning. 
Next time on Shelter, we highlight some of the projects our partner organizations are working on in collaboration with the community to achieve local impacts. That's arguably to me one of the most important things you can do and ask people who are homeless is providing them services and helping them work through that pain, that trauma, and really saying, okay, so what's next? Shelter is brought to you by the Rutgers University New Brunswick's Public History Program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Collab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jeremy Brink, and Kristen O'Brassel-Colfin. Thanks also to Nate for recording the interview with Pastor Seth that we featured in this episode. Our theme music is by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez, and this series is made with the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation. Remember that this podcast is just one element of the larger Shelter Project, which also includes oral history interviews, as well as artistic responses to the housing crisis. You could learn more by visiting our website at shelternj.org. We encourage you to follow or subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. Thanks for listening.